um, tonight. Um, I'm going to be talking about great marriages. And the reality is, I think the majority of the people here will one day get married. I think that is um, just the truth statement. The reality is most people do get married. Um, you can have a great life single. You can also have a great life married. Um, but because the reality is that most people will get married, um, tonight I want to talk about how to build great marriages. And um, this is something that I believe wholeheartedly. Um, I'm a staunch supporter of marriage and family. Um, I consider that something that's so deep in my heart just because um, home is our genesis, isn't it? Um, there's something that God impressed on my heart uh, years ago, and it's the idea that the home is the genesis, and everything that we do in our adult lives, we do it in a way that we're trying to enhance or erase what we experienced in the home. You think about it. Like, if the good things that our parents gave to us, we're trying to make that even better, and we're trying to enhance that. And our parents weren't perfect, and they hurt us in ways. And the hurt that we received from our parents, we're trying to erase. And our adult lives are spent enhancing or erasing what happened in our childhood home. That's how powerful the home is. It's our benchmark. It's where we create the standard and where the bar is set. And that's how important the home is. And so for you young parents, um, what we do with our children is really in a way shaping the future school boards, the school systems and the, and the boardrooms and councils of the next generation. And it's a, it's a very holy calling that we have as, as parents of the next generation in shaping a godly home. And a godly home starts from a godly marriage, right? Before any one of us considers us ourselves a, a father or mother, we need to consider ourselves a husband and, and wife. That that must be the genesis. That, uh, that our children must know that we are a husband that loves their mom or a mom that loves their father. That, that is an absolute must. And, and great and holy homes start with great and holy marriages. And so that's, that's what I want to talk about tonight. Uh, if I've officiated your marriage, or if you've ever been to a wedding that I've officiated, um, there's something that I talk about a lot, and I felt it that it, even though it might be redundant for some, I felt a great need, because it's just something that I believe in wholeheartedly. And so for tonight, I want to talk about in your, in your booklets um, some, some ideas that I think we get wrong in, in common popular culture, that as we think about what it means to be married or have a, uh, a family, that there are certain ide ideologies and truths that, that mislead us. And I think it's important to break those misleading truths in order for us to build a strong marriage. And um, it, uh, in my opinion, tonight and tomorrow morning, the, the things that we talk about, if you can at least grab a hold of some of these things, I think you'll be on your way to, to building a, a great marriage. And um, wh where I'll, I'll start today are what I'll call as marriage myths, um, misconceptions. And uh, the first uh, myth that I want to talk about is kind of what I talked about last time, this idea that the goal of marriage is happiness. That is a, a, a total misunderstanding. And... I think deep down, we all want to be happy in life. I think that's a good pursuit, right? If that is our chief pursuit, there lies the problem. It can be a good pursuit, but it must not be the primary. And too often, we want to marry a person to make us happy. Let's be honest. 
right? We're, we're not marrying a person so our life would be more difficult. We're marrying a person that we hope would enhance our lives and make us that much better, right? And this idea of, of happiness, in my opinion, is rooted in something that I will call a consumer mentality. And we're all consumers, right? We all have phones and cars and uh, we buy products. We, we utilize companies. And the consumer mentality is totally like how we interface with Target or Costco or Toyota or Honda, BMW or Volvo, like Talate was mentioning in his uh, uh, finance seminar. That a consumer relationship is really about this, that I stay in this relationship as long as I'm happy. Think about it. Right? As long as I'm happy. And the first idea of what a consumer relationship is based upon, it's based on personal satisfaction, right? Like, am I happy with Toyota? And if I'm happy with it, I'll stick with it, right? And uh, uh, if I'm, uh, you know, my wife and I, we have not arguments, but we have like, you know, she's a Samsung person. I'm an iPhone guy, right? And uh, I always tell her, you know, Samsung sucks. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and she, every time Samsung has a, a feature that is not available on the iPhone, she goes, iPhone sucks, right? <laughs> and uh, that's exactly it, that I am satisfied with the Apple product. I'm satisfied with the ecosystem. And to the, to the point where I do not want to abandon Apple to go to Samsung because I am personally satisfied with what it offers me, right? The advantages that it gives me. As soon as I come to the place where I believe that I am better off with Samsung, I promise you I will no longer have an iPhone because that's my relationship with my smartphone that what I am, uh, have the, the most amount of success and satisfaction with, that is the place that I choose to go. It happens with the vehicles we drive. Now, uh, the, the, the relationship that we have with our cars are based on a couple of things. Looks, economy, you know, and a bunch of other things. You know, uh, you know when we first started City Chapel, did, did I have the, the G35 when we first started City Chapel? Right? I had the, the black G uh, Infinity, right? And uh, from there, I moved to the, the Toyota Highlander, right? And the finances kind of changed, and we got rid of one car to get rid of the car payment. And I was driving my mother-in-law's Lexus, uh, like, you know, older Lexus uh, RX. And after she needed her car back, I needed to get a car. And so I got an affordable uh, hybrid Camry, right? And so kind of as the different stages of, of life change. And, you know, I remember when I bought that G35, you know, like... Uh, you know, I was, I, when I want to buy a, a car, I mean, I usually try to buy a car that's around three years old. You know, it's got the most amount of depreciation. And if it was ma well maintained, you get the best kind of value for the, uh, for the buck. And so I researched for two days straight and I found the car that I wanted. I took my wife down to the lot and I said to her, "Hun, I want this car, right? And uh, I convinced her to, and by uh, saying to her, you know, Hun, I'll, I think I'm going to drive this car for seven, eight years. I promise, right? And, uh, uh, she let me buy the car, and so I drove off the lot with it. And I love the car. I mean, it had the feel that I like in a car. It's nice and heavy. It's got a firm handle. It had a decent amount of acceleration, and just the interior had all full options as a used car. And so I, I thoroughly enjoyed the car. And this is at time, you know, when we only had Jacob, one child. And so you had one car seat in the back. If Jenny needed to attend to Jacob while I was driving, she would sit in the back. And, you know, everything was fine in this particular car. And 
Uh, Christopher was born uh, after we started City Chapel. Two weeks after we started City Chapel, Christopher came into our lives. And I remember the first doctor's hospital visit that we had to go to, right? We had now two car seats in the back, and Jenny was wedged in the back seat like this because she couldn't fully sit back. And I just remember looking at that rearview mirror and saying, um, I like this car, but things have changed. And I was no longer satisfied with it. Not that I didn't like the car, but it, didn't, it no longer met my needs. And so within a matter of weeks, I sold the car and I got a larger SUV. I got a Toyota Highlander used at the time, right? And at that time, I, I loved the Highlander, right? And it just worked out for our family. But soon a time came where our budget was kind of being stretched and we realized that the car payment wasn't something that we wanted to handle. And now it then was no longer satisfied. It no longer met the needs of the moment. And this is the consumer relationship. We kind of, we, we kind of bounce when we hot potato from one thing to the next. As long as it meets our needs and we're happy with it, we stick with it. And as soon as we come to the place that we're no longer happy with it or we feel as though it no longer meets my needs, we then jump ship. Personal satisfaction is a total consumer relationship idea. The second idea is this idea of investment versus return, right? This is exactly how we treat our jobs. Think about it, right? If you are receiving in compensation, in satisfaction, work fulfillment, compensation package, benefits, all of that. If what you give and if you feel that you are getting as much or more back, you stay in this job. But as soon as you feel like, you know what, I feel like I'm working more than I get. I don't feel like I'm getting paid enough. Or I feel like I'm getting paid enough, but the fulfillment isn't there. Or I feel like the drive, driving an hour and a half to two hours in traffic is just not worth the stress of the paycheck. And I feel like what I'm putting in, in energy and time and in whatever facet, I feel like I'm not getting enough back. And as soon as you feel that you're not getting enough back from your work, what do we do? We start looking for another job, right? We start saying, you know what, it's just not working out. I'm investing too much and there's not enough return. This is consumer relationship. But too often, I think this idea translates to how we treat relationships, right? We treat relationships like this, like, you know, for right now, you're meeting my emotional need. That, you know, you're meeting my physical need. You're meeting my spiritual need. And for whatever reason, I am satisfied in the relationship. But there are times when we go through emotional shifts and changes. And suddenly in moments, I feel that I'm no longer satisfied here. I feel like I'm not getting enough back from you. I feel like I'm paying for everything and I'm not getting enough in return. I'm giving and I'm serving you, but you're not serving me back to the degree that I am serving you. And suddenly we feel an imbalance in the relationship. And suddenly the red flags go up and we begin to question. Is this the one? Now, when we're dating, we can think like this, right? If you're dating, because you're not into this, this commitment yet. And so when you're dating, there is this idea that this can kind of creep in, right? But too often, these ideas go past the marriage altar into the marriage life. And time shifts, right? A baby comes in the picture, and our spouse is no longer as affectionate. Our needs aren't met. What happens then? If I feel like I'm giving, I'm working eight plus hours a day, 60 hours a week, and I'm giving all of this into the relationship, and I'm just not getting enough back from you. Right? And if we start trading in our wives because they're not as sleek and sexy as the new model coming out, or if we start trading in our husbands because they're like a dead-end job and we're giving so much to them and they're not giving enough back to us, if that's how we treat the marriage relationship, it's no wonder marriages fail. 
because those times change. And so if you are thinking about getting married, you must throw these ideas away. If you don't throw them away, you will never have a great marriage. I promise you. I promise you. You might have a happy marriage for a couple of years. You might have a, 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 an enjoyable time for a, a period. But I promise you, you will never, ever, ever build a great marriage if this is how you think about the relationship. Never. Cannot happen. I promise you. Right? And so we must abandon the consumer relationship mentality. This idea that I'm just satisfied with you, that's why I'm staying, or I'm getting enough from you, that's why I'm here. If I don't throw that away, it won't happen, right? That a marriage should be about covenant. Covenant is different than contract. Right? Contract is we are mutually en uh, entering this agreement. If I break it or you break it, okay, it's gone. The contract is broken. Covenant is different, right? Covenant is different. Contract is two people shaking hands. When one person let go, it is, it is broken. It is disconnected. Covenant is when you hold forearm to forearm, one person lets go, you're still connected. God loves us in covenant. When we break and we fall away from God, He says, God, I'm not feeling it anymore. I, I just want to backpedal and, and just walk away from you. And we live uh, a life of unholiness and just utter rebellion against God. And we let go of God. God is still hanging on to our forearm. There's still a connection. That's covenant. Covenant is not contractual where you're just one point of contact here. And so marriage is covenant. And it's about enduring commitment. And this is exactly how God loves us, right? Right? It's exactly, it's like He loves us through our rough patches when we're not just rebellious, when we're outright nasty to God. God says, okay, I, I can get it, I, I handle it, I can handle you now. And He loves us through that. It's enduring, it's a commitment that goes through the ups and downs of the relationship, through all of the failures and, and unmet expectations, through all of even the doubts and hurtful things said, that there is a, a commitment that is enduring there. That is how marriage is built. Because as soon as we get into a fight and suddenly I feel like, you know what, it's just not working out anymore. Suddenly, it's, it's, it's based on here. And we need, to, we need to get into this area of something that's enduring. And the second idea of covenant relationship, it's about sacrificial giving. And these are like the polar opposites, right? And so I stick with it as long as I'm satisfied. Enduring commitment says even through the dissatisfaction, I'm here, I'm committed. Investment versus return, as long as I'm getting back as much as I'm giving, I'll stay. Sacrificial giving says I will give even though I don't give back. And so how a strong, great marriage is built is completely different to how traditionally we think about relationships and why we stay in them. It's like, it's, it's apples and oranges. I mean, how many hours of work is equivalent to hours of childcare or housework? I mean, how do you compare the two, right? And so in order to have a marriage that is based on sacrificial giving. I'll get into this more, right? But we have to completely abandon the idea that a marriage is 50-50. Uh, that we have to completely go against that. And I think we're trained in that way, right? It's like, okay, uh, that I bring this and you bring that, okay? And, and we're kind of always towing that middle line and saying, okay, this is a partnership here, okay? That if I'm making money, I expect you to shore your end of the bargain and do a little bit of stuff on this end, and we're going to kind of meet equal participation, right? 
Right. And this is how we think we have a strong marriage, if it's 50-50, if it's just equal participation, joint venture, right? But we need to abandon that. Why? 50-50 mentality always keeps score. I mean, think about it. Every time you're in, if you're in a relationship, what do you do? You have this imaginary piece of paper, and there's a line drawn down the middle. Your name is on the left, your partner's name is on the right, right? Your boyfriend, spouse, whatever, whoever that might be. And whenever you do something for the relationship, you give a gift, you say something nice, you send a text, whatever it is, you kind of make a mental note. You jot it down on your side of the paper, right? You say, I did this for the relationship. I have done this for you. I have given this and said that. And every time we do something, we write it on our side of the paper. And every time our partner or significant other does something for us, we mentally take note of it. And we write it on their side of this imaginary paper. And what we want is equity. Think about it. If suddenly on your side of the paper, it is like written all the way down to the bottom and on their side, there's just a few line items. We're like, wait a minute. It's a little lopsided here. Hey, come on. Participate a little bit now, right? This is what we're wanting, what we're kind of yelling out, whether aggressively or passive aggressively. We are demanding this type of equal participation in the relationship. Here's the problem. We always think that we give more and we give more credit and weight to the things that we input into the relationship. There are things that are unsaid, unheard, unseen from our partner's perspective that they think they've done for the relationship, but we haven't mentally taken note of it. But on their side, they've taken note of it, and they've missed the items that we have written on our side. And everybody, both sides, thinks it's an imbalance. I think I'm giving more, and this person thinks they're giving more. And it happens all of the time. Why? We're selfish. And so when I think marriage should be 50-50, I will always think that I'm giving more. Always. And this is where the friction starts. It's exactly where it starts. Because I'm demanding this. Hey, come on now. right? But I'm going to get more into this tomorrow, this idea of 50-50. And so... Abandon this consumer idea of personal satisfaction and investment versus return. And you need, you must embrace these ideas of a commitment that is enduring through the hard patches and about giving even when you don't get. And if you can embrace that, you've at least begun to, to march down a path of building a successful marriage. Right? And I think you should even date this way. Start dating this way. I know there's some ideas. I mean, if you haven't, if you really feel like it's a lopsided thing and you haven't married yet, you don't have to stay in the relationship. There's no, re- there's no reason to, you know. Right? But after marriage, uh, you definitely cannot think that way. It's, it's much different. Right? But I think even in dating, we need to, to think this way. Right? So the first kind of misconception or myth of marriage, I believe, is that marriage was, is supposed to make me happy, that we need to abandon that because that's consumer mentality. The second myth that I'll talk about is that God has designed for each and every one of us a one and only. I mentioned to you that I was set up with Jenny, right? And so I had never been set up before at the time. And, I, you know, um, it was a new thing for me. I was a little nervous for the entire thing. Not only did I not know who she was, she's coming from, you know, a different side. And I was like, I knew she was from the KM. And so like on our first date, I'm testing her out if she speaks English, right? <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm just wondering, right? And from the flip side, she's testing me out to see if I speak Korean, right? <laughs> and, uh, it was just kind of funny that way. 
But I remember on one of our early dates, I, mean, I told you I'm a young uh, pastor at the time. I didn't want to have an unnecessary relationship that created, you know, temptation or gossip or, or, or whatever. And so I wanted to know that if this is it, okay, I'll stay. If it's not, I won't. And, and so I remember on one of our first dates and I, uh, I fell into this idea that there's a one. I said, God, if she's the one uh, that you want me to marry, show me a sign, right? And we had met at, uh, at the beach uh, uh, down in Orange County that particular day. And uh, on the way home, I got back in my car. We had dr- driven separately. I'm back in my car. I said, Lord, if she is the one that you want me to marry, may I have all green lights all the way home. This is your sign that you're giving me to go, right? It's a long drive all the way back home. And I said, Lord, I don't want to come to a stop at a red light. And like, I'm, I'm driving. It's weird. I'm driving, right? With green light. Oh, yeah. You feel your heart turns into hell, right? Green light. It's like red. And green. It turns green light, right? And when it's like red for a long time, you're like, slow. Like, slow down and coast a little bit, right? And red light. Green light. Yes. It is. But I, you know, I didn't make it all the way home with green lights, right? But I fell into that error as well of asking God for a sign. I, I, I think to a degree... All Christians, they, they want some sort of confirmation from God to say, Lord, uh, is this the person? Is this the one and only that you have for me? And you hear that in marriage speeches all the time, right? And even in best manner or maid of honor speeches that you are her or his one and only. You hear that all the time, right? And we've fallen into this idea that if we find the one and only, we will have a blissful marriage. Right? That if I find the one, I'm like on autopilot, right? To a great marriage. You know, we're like meant for each other. We're compatible. You know, we like the same things and we're just in sync with one another. And you are the one for me. And we expect to have just a, a, a cruise to a good marriage if we find the one. And that's why we want the one, right? But I think that's a misconception. I think you can have a great marriage with different people. And I don't mean at the same time, right? What I mean is that there is person A, person B, and person C. I think if you chose to marry any one of those people, you could have a great marriage with any one of them. Right? Because um, um, a marriage isn't pre-made a great marriage. It's not just pre-packaged and dropped in our laps when we meet the one and we choose the right one like a lottery. Yeah, it's the right one. And we're going to have a great marriage? Now, no. Mar- marriages that are great are not happening because we met the one. Great marriages happen because they're made, they're built. And if I choose to to give an enduring commitment and a sacrificial giving into a relationship, I can make this relationship great. And if I chose to marry this person and I give an enduring commitment and I give personal sacrifice, I can make this relationship great. So we need to stop thinking about having a great marriage by marrying the one and start thinking about how am I invested into this relationship and am I loving this person as Christ has called me to, right? And so move away from the thinking that God is going to give you the one. Because great marriages don't happen, right? They're made. Here's the dangerous misconception. That I'll have a great marriage if I marry the one. The third and last myth that I'll talk about today, and I'll go into four and five tomorrow, is that marriage is only a piece of paper. Um, One of the most powerful illustrations of marriage that God gave me happened through a children's toy. 
When Jacob was born and he was a toddler, there, he went into like different phases, like blocks. He loved blocks. And after he graduated from blocks, he was totally into Play-Doh, right? He loved Play-Doh. I mean, I remember the church members, you guys would buy him Play-Doh by the boxes, man. And this kid would just go bananas with these, these, these tubs of Play-Doh, right? And when he was just starting out in Play-Doh, I mean, I'm like the anal, almost OCD father, right? And, uh, I mean, you go to my closet, I mean, it is long sleeves, short sleeves, color-coded, dark to light, right? It is just like that. I come home, everything is hung, right? It's different for Jenny, right? Everything comes home, it's on the bed or the chair or somewhere, right? It's, it's, we have different patterns. And so for me, I like that order, right? I like that consistency and the progression, and I, I, I like that. And so when Jacob started playing with these Play-Dohs, and I, he started to play with more than one color, right? And I, got, I get a little nervous, right? As that, that anal dad, right? I'm like, son, don't mix up the color. After you're done, put them back in, put the lid on so it doesn't dry up and you can use it again the next time, right? And um, I remember it like one time he got to it before I could tell him not to mix the colors and he mixed them up, right? And what happens when you mix up the Play-Doh colors, right? It is absolutely impossible to separate them again. And this is, I know this. And from there, God showed me this idea that this is what marriage is. When two people come together in union and two people become one, you can no longer separate them back into their separate tubs, wholly in their colors. You never leave a marriage fully intact. Never happens. Never happens. And so there is some sort of intermixing that you can no longer unwind. So marriage is absolutely more than a certificate that we keep in our drawer or file cabinet or safe. Marriage is absolutely more than a record at the county clerk's office. Marriage is absolutely more than some pictures that were taken at a wedding. Marriage is more than the recollections of our relatives and friends because they attended our wedding day. County clerk's office burns down, our house is burned down, every record of marriage is gone, certificate is gone, ring is lost, everybody loses their memory, can't remember that we're married, even though all of that would happen, each and every one of us, when we enter in a marriage, we're still married. Because marriage is more than a certificate, a clerk's record, or the recollection, the memory of some guests. Marriage is first a vertical promise to God before it's a horizontal promise to my partner, right? And so when I enter this marriage, I need to heighten its understanding. I need to elevate its idea and know that it's a covenant before God. That God says, you're one. You're one. You, you fully mash the colors together. It's, it's one. That's what it is, right? And it's, it's much more uh, that changing my marital status it's much more complicated than filing for some paperwork. And when, when I realize this vertical commitment to God first, and I realize what God has called me to in this relationship, I think it changes the dynamic of how we interact and how we commit. And I realize that the strength of our marriage is not really the horizontal one, but it's the vertical one. And, and I get that straight. Other things tend to line up. I give the analogy all the time in marriage counseling that it's the marriage triangle. The husband and the wife are the bottom corners and God is on the top. And I think too often couples meet on the bottom line 
and they want to, you know, they're cordial, they're chivalrous, they, they court one another, right? And they try to woo each other and they send gifts and send thoughtful messages and they do things in service for one another. And all along, they feel in love. And where they've met is the bottom point here, the middle of the bottom line. They've come together and they feel in love. But the problem of a marriage like this is this is one of the most fragile places right here. Because what happens when the money dries up, when the affection dries up? What happens if a person becomes handicapped and can no longer serve the other person in the way that he or she did before? What happens when capacities or abilities are completely lost? I can't go on the dates as I did. I can't go on the yearly vacations and I can't show as I did before. Suddenly, I feel as though the connection is weak because these things are all temporal and frail. And so the strength of a marriage happens vertically when a husband goes towards God and a wife goes towards God and they meet at this point. They're still meeting together, but they don't meet at the middle of the bottom line. They meet at the apex of the triangle where God is. And when a couple, a husband and a wife, meet here and they do things that are centered on faith and on the personality and the calling of God, the strength of the marriage is different. And this I vouch for personally. After Jenny and I got married, right, we went on our honeymoon. We went to Cozumel, Mexico. And... You know, I had researched this, right? And we, we spent, it's just an island off of Cancun, right, in Mexico. And I had some immigration issues. I'm a Canadian citizen by birth, and I, have, I had some immigration issues. I lived, I overstayed my stay, and just different things happened, right? And I was told, because there was a, a deacon at the church who knew my situation, he said, oh, just get married to an American citizen and everything's going to be fine. I'll help you take care of all the paperwork when you get back from your honeymoon. And I, like, believed this deacon. I said, okay, great. We're going to Cozumel. We'll be right back and we'll take care of all the paperwork, right? We're married now. And so we go to Cozumel. We spend a great five, five nights and six days over there. And we fly back. We're transiting through Charlotte, North Carolina to LAX. And as we land in Charlotte, we're going through immigration. And the, the, uh, the officer at the desk, right, uh, you know, as we go, like, you know, passport. So I show my Canadian passport and the, the U.S. passport of, of Jenny, right? And uh, the officer goes, okay, where's your paperwork? And I said, what paperwork? I said, you know, the paperwork that your marriage and all that other stuff, that your immigration proceedings. And I said, oh, I was told by a person. <laughs> I was told by a person that we would take care of it, that we could do it after we got back from our honeymoon because we got just married less than a week ago. Laughed in my face. And suddenly, I got extremely nervous, right? And they put me into the back room. I still remember the officer's name, Officer Jeremy Onifer. And there was a bit of trepidation in my heart now. We're sitting in this inner secondary room of immigration. Jenny's there. I'm there. We got our a honeymoon luggage. And uh, I go to the officer. He asks for my wallet and I empty it out. He finds a California driver's license and a couple of other things and says, you know, you've overstayed here. Uh, you can't come back into the United States and uh, you need to send your wife here back on her transit flight to LAX and you need to stay here and we're going to deport you back to the port of entry which was Mexico and uh, so I remember walking that final sad corridor and I'm walking with Jenny and she turns the corner and I'm like crying right I'm just in tears and I can't believe that this is the last day of our honeymoon and uh, she goes and I, and, I, and I go back to the, the desk and I, and I sit there. It's like 5 p.m., her transit flight, and I stayed there until 
uh, 10 uh, p.m. as I was being questioned. And at 10 p.m. the officer comes to me and he goes, can you stand up? And I stood up and he turns me around and he proceeds to handcuff me. And I said, oh, what's going on? I thought, uh, you said I'm just going to go back to, the, to Mexico, the port of entry. He says, you are, but there's no flights now and you cannot sleep over at the airport. You need to sleep at the county jail and we'll bring you back in the morning to send you on your flight. And so he handcuffs me and through the airport van, he, uh, he, he buses me to Mecle Mecklenburg County Jail in Charlotte, North Carolina. I arrived there at 11 p.m. and I remember going up this elevator, I think it was to the fourth floor, and I sit in this plastic chair. And um, I am sitting there in this chair uh, until about, I think, 5, 4.30, 5 a.m. And um, finally my name gets called and I'm asked to stand in this line. And I go and I stand and I get to this officer and he tells me, okay, strip down, jump in the shower and put on this jumpsuit. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to get picked up at about 8 o'clock. Can I just go back to the chair? And he's like, no, it is mandatory. Strip down, jump in the shower, put on the jumpsuit. And so I do that. I remember talking to a gentleman by the name of Kevin Flower. Get in my, my cell, 6 a.m.-ish. And um, as I, I'm there, I'm lying down in this kind of... Uh, five by ten by ten uh, cell and uh, I'm staring at the ceiling lying down on this cot and I'm thinking wow can't believe I'm here right I wonder what Jenny's thinking I wonder what my in-laws are thinking right and uh, I there was a roll call like at I think seven o'clock in the morning because there was a shift in the guard and we all have to stand up in a line outside of our cell to greet the new guard we get back in our cell my name finally gets called I go and I change I get bust back to the airport. I make one phone call, that's all I get. And I call Jenny, I said, "Hunt, you need to buy me a plane ticket from Cozumel. And I'm from Vancouver, right? And so I said, just buy me a plane ticket from Cozumel to Vancouver. And here's the thing, there's no direct flights, but I cannot transit through the United States of America. And so she finds me a ticket from Cozumel to Mexico City, Mexico City to Vancouver. I fly there at midnight, I arrive on the following day. And I remember there's no shuttles now at the airport. So I take a taxi. I pay about 40 bucks to go to downtown. It's the only place that I feel comfortable that there's a place open. I find a Best Western for $120 that had free Wi-Fi and I get on my laptop as I'm there and uh, I start emailing everybody that that I know what happened. I emailed the church and the, of course the family and everybody and uh, I'm stuck here in Vancouver as a newlywed. My wife is in LA and uh, uh, I, she flies up, I think it was about a week and a half later after organizing. She returned all of our wedding gifts. She, she, she came back home to a mount. I mean, I was a youth pastor at the time of a large church. We had about a thousand people at our wedding, right? And our entire newly furnished, a newlywed apartment had a mountain of gifts in the living room. She single-handedly returned all of that, all of the appliances that we bought. After taking care of all of that, she got on a flight and came back up to Vancouver to see me spend a couple of months there and the whole while we're wondering where should we live what should we do and someone had told me uh, and asked have you ever thought about moving to Korea and I said why what's in Korea and well I don't know if you know that a lot of um, English type churches are popping up and they're trying to set up a ministry to expats and you know we had a branch church in Seoul that could have kind of housed us and sponsored us and so Jenny and I took a flight out in in August um, for five weeks to see if this is a place that we could live at and at the end of our time there we both agreed let's live here rather than Vancouver and so we go back 
and she flies back to LA, I fly back to Vancouver. She organizes everything, cancels the lease, does everything, ships the car, all of uh, some of the furniture that we kept, all of our belongings, she ships that, and then I fly from Vancouver on October 29th of 2005. We finally arrive in Korea, and she arrives there, and um, we are living in Korea, trying to start a new ministry there, and doing uh, different things, and I, I mean, I'm Korean uh, in, uh, ethnically, but I remember feeling so out of place there. I like, I don't speak f Korean fluently. Um, everyone is Korean. I feel odd, out of place, and um, I'm wondering what's happening. And the whole while through, I'm, you know, from time to time, I call my dad and my my parents who are, you know, and in LA. And my dad used to always tell me on the phone, you know, he calls me Bobby, right? He goes, Hey, Bobby, don't fight, and because he's thinking that the marriage is strained and that you're fighting, right? It's a natural conclusion. And I said, you know, we're not. And, uh, uh, you know, the entire time through, as we were going through this entire process in these first half, uh, uh, six, half year, six months of our marriage, we were asking God, and, you know, uh, what are you doing? What, what's going on? And I remember um, being in the shower one particular morning in the first, um, you know, couple of months there in Korea, and. I hadn't thought about this uh, since. And do you remember what I told you in the first session, the conversation that we had on our second date in California Adventures and on the bench, that would she be willing to spend the beginning part of our, her marriage in the mission field? And I, I was standing in the shower one particular morning, and it was the first time I thought about that conversation since. I mean, I didn't neglect it saying, oh, I just asked and I never ever want to do that. It was just naturally, I was a part of a church, I already had a ministry, life was going, and we naturally thought that after marriage we would live and serve to the capacity that I was already serving. And I'm sitting in, uh, standing in the shower and I said to myself, that was the conversation that we had. This is the beginning of our marriage in our mission field. And I remember believing and thinking about the faithfulness of God. And likewise for her as well. Now, there was a lot of hardships. The greatest guilt that I had as a newlywed, as a husband at the time, was towards my in-laws. I didn't know what to say to them. I had ripped their daughter. I mean, that was the first time she had dated, got married in the span of a year. You know, we, we, we dated. I told you our first uh, date was May 17th, 2004. I proposed to her September 18th of that same year, four months and a day after our first date. And then we had an eight-month engagement and we got married from a year and two weeks from our first date to final marriage day. And our marriage day took on our honeymoon and I'm ripping their daughter out of their clutches like within the span of just a few, you know, months it seems. And everything is just thrown. I had this tremendous amount of shame and guilt to my in-laws. I didn't know what to say to them. Of course, God dealt with that with me. But why I share this is to go back to this triangle. If the strength of our marriage was in where we lived, who we were with, the amount of money that we had, and all of the things on the temporal side, all of the things that we thought would make a strong marriage, where we met here, that marriage would have broken. I promise you it would have. I don't think it could have lasted six months like that. If we were just at each other's throat, if I was constantly just trying to beg her, my in-laws, to forgive me, and if she put that type of pressure on me. But she didn't. She had so much faith and joy in the process. Of course she had hardship. But we came together, we prayed every single night, we sat on our bed every single night, and we cried in each other's arms. I still remember that. And uh, like, it just meant so much for our, our new marriage. And uh, 
where we met was right here. It, that was it. And, uh, you know, uh, like I, I felt as a newlywed for, for so many years of our marriage. And uh, I think in the beginning, what we both saw in each other was an individual that wanted to serve and love God. And we both saw in one another a person who was striving to meet and to build the marriage right here. And I, in my opinion, I think that's the strength of our marriage. And so this idea that it's a piece of paper, that all of these things in marriage and consumer relationships, you know, as we throw that away and we realize that the strength of our marriage is built on something much higher, a promise that's much bigger and deeper than we can ever imagine. I, I think we've prepared the ground. We've kind of tilled it and we've, uh, we've prepared it for something great. And that's what I hope for you guys. If you're married, I hope your marriage is great. If you want to be married and will be married, I hope that you have a great marriage. But I promise you, you're going to have to challenge some conventional thinking if you want that great marriage. And if you want a marriage that's going to last through time, you've got to abandon consumerism and you've got to embrace covenant. Amen. I'll stop here before I'm a wreck. Um, can I, tonight, um, I'd like to give you some time as well in your small groups. And um, we'll, we'll finish off this idea of great marriages tomorrow, tomorrow morning. But tonight, I hope you can really, again, unpackage and be open and vulnerable with one another. So God bless you in your groups. You can meet in the same place that you want. Amen.